You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 44, and I'm Brandon. And I'm Allison. And this week, we thought we'd do kind of, well, actually, I didn't come up with the idea, but you came up with the idea. It kind of like how there's a lot of lists of gifts and different things to to get people for different kinds of subjects or different kinds of things. And so why not do something fermentation related? Yeah, I thought it was a great idea, especially since, um, you know, a really big American holiday or Christian holidays coming up in about 10 days. And so people are probably rushing around trying to finish their Christmas shopping or if they celebrated Hanukkah, maybe they have some Hanukkah gifts they need to get for other people. Or um, that's another good good point is that even if they're not getting gifts, maybe – People that celebrated Hanukkah, I don't know, maybe have a gift certificate or something. Or if people are listening to this episode after the holidays, maybe they have some gift certificates and want to get something for themselves. You know, so there's there's plenty of things. I I think that we'll have plenty to talk about this episode because I try not to be super materialistic, but I do like stuff. And especially when it's stuff that is something that I'm very interested in. And I think that sometimes some tools make life a lot easier, um, even though fermentation can be done with pretty much absolutely nothing and has been done with very few items throughout history. I still think there's a lot of, a lot of interesting um, equipment out there that can may or may not, may not be useful for some people. And if nothing else, there's plenty of like knowledge is always worth getting. There's plenty of books that we can talk about today too. Yeah. And I think it's a great idea to share all this stuff with people who talk about wanting to do fermentation, but again, like they don't know where to start. They don't know how to do it. And the whole anxiety of, Everything, you know, and as you said, knowledge, knowledge is power. So you can get them books. And um, there's a lot of stuff that's on my gift idea list that I have at my house that I find so useful and helpful and just makes a world of difference. And they're not that expensive. That's the other great thing about most of these gifts is they don't have to cost you an arm and a leg. And for the right person, it could be, a you know, a diamond in the rough. But before we get to that, since you did mention things that you have in your house, uh, how's your skunk issue? Is, are they I... gone? I think that they are gone. I think that um, they may not have been skunks. They may have been possums. Do they smell still? Well, see, that's what I didn't. I was I was curious about that. So I looked it up and possums sometimes when they're in distress or um, in an uncomfortable environment, they secrete a smell that smells like decay and rotting dead material, which makes sense because they play possum and they play dead. Um, so, and I'm only thinking that we had possums under a house because we put a trap out and we caught one. Um, I, and I also thought, well, maybe there's possums and skunks under our house, but it turns out that skunks and possums are, you know, enemies in, in the wild. So they wouldn't cohabitate under a house. So I think it was possums, but I don't know. It could still be skunks. But anyway, the smell is gone and all is good. And when it comes to that kind of like, did you find a threshold level are uh, skunks? Is the scent of skunk way worse than that rotten decaying scent of of these possums? Or like, I mean, where was your threshold? I mean, are they about equal or were you kind of like people that have actually smelled skunks are probably thinking you were like total wimps now for thinking that it was anything like skunk? <laughs> um. Well, we've had a skunk and. I may I may have mentioned this in our last episode. We used to, we had a skunk in our garage once that sprayed our dog, and that was by far the worst smell I've ever smelled in my life. Um, when they spray close to you in close proximity, it smells like burning rubber. 
um, but really bad burning rubber. So actually the skunk smell, when you smell it on the, on the highway, like you, someone ran over it, maybe a, a miles ago and it's just kind of lingering in the air. That's actually really pleasant compared to the smell of skunks directly in front of you. So, um, personally, I think skunks smell worse than possums, but the, this possum smell was pretty bad. I just like the fact that you use the word pleasant and uh, the scent of skunk in the same sentence. So <laughs> I think that may be the only time I will ever use it in that phrase because, you know, skunks are nasty. They just start. It's just a survival thing that they've developed is this terrible smell. Um, but I, I mean, I learned something. I had no idea that possums also produced some sort of the foul smell. So that was news to me. See, we don't only learn things about fermentation in this podcast. I didn't know that either. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of cool. So now I know what to look out for. I don't know if there's really too much of a skunk problem around these parts though. So, but got plenty of other wildlife and stuff. Yeah. I think it's a problem here in, um, San Diego and in high populated areas, just because this used to be their home and we've taken it over. Um, we also have a, a big problem with coyotes, um, which would, you would think that's, that's strange. Why would you have coyotes in the middle of a, a city where there's a million people or something? But um, there's a lot of canyons and um, the coyotes live in the canyons um, and their resource, their natural resources and their food and stuff are kind of disappearing. So they're going out into the neighborhoods. And a lot of people here um, in my neighborhood also have um, chickens in their backyard for eggs and for pets. And so the coyotes have started eating the chickens, which is kind of sad, but, you know, they, they need to survive, too. Yeah, that's the reality of her. I mean, there, there's coyotes around here as well. And then there, there are in the city. I mean, I think that anyone that lives in an area that does have coyotes is really not much of a surprise because I, it is surprising the first time seeing, a, you know, they're not that big, but they definitely don't look like dogs um, just uh, hanging out in the middle of the day. Sometimes it's like, wow, um, around me kind of living out more in the country. It's, uh, I just hear them off in the distance, but, uh, I don't think they come down in this little Valley that I'm in that often, but, uh, otherwise our chickens would be in much more danger than they, they are. So we got possums, we've got, uh, chickens, we've got coyotes covered. So I guess, you know, we, we, we're covering a lot of animals. So we might as well move on to some of the, some of the fermentation now. Yeah. They're uh, with a little bit of follow-up. There were, uh, in regard to ginger beer plant and kefir, I think last time I didn't really have a specific answer for what the difference in between the organisms were between the two, uh, between water kefir and, and ginger beer plant. And, uh, I still don't have the answer for you, but in looking at it, because I just couldn't find my notes where I had that specifically, I did find this other interesting article or, or paper that was published in, uh, on January 21st, 1892, Oh. All about the ginger beer plant. And in, it's this man by the name of H. Marshall Ward that I'll put the link in the show notes. It's the ginger beer plant, the organisms composing it, a contribution to the study of fermentation, yeasts, and bacteria. So it's an interesting read. I've only started to read it, but it's talking all about what is known about or what was known about ginger beer plant at that time. And I think it was probably more well known then than it is now, especially in the British Isles and other areas where it was, where it was popular. It was, it's, I think it's, it's worth reading and it's definitely worth trying to trying to, it's fun to read out loud uh, with a uh, fake British accent. 
Well, it's interesting that um, not much research from has been done on it. I mean, I've I've never heard of ginger beer plant. I'm I'm going to read it for sure. Um, and it's interesting that the article is from 1892. Oh, that yeah. is really old. Oh, I'm just scrolling. Th- I have actually, it's pretty long, and it's got diagrams and everything in here about like the different things that he used to. Uh, to study it, like a soda water flask arranged for fermentation experiment, uh, plugged with cotton wool and mercury in manometer tube. I mean, there's all kinds of things. I'm really interested to see what he was able to figure out because he talks about things like pasture water or uh, pasture's water, I guess is a, I don't know, maybe you're the food scientist. Maybe it's still used as a term, but I'm assuming not because it's just a sugar water mixture as a way to capture microorganisms. But it was so close to Pasteur's time that they're still referring to it as Pasteur's water. I, I can't wait to read this. I had no idea that this even existed and that it's still, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it right now and the text and yeah, the diagrams look awesome for being, I mean, for relatively old research, they're pretty well made. Yeah. This actually looks even more exciting. I've, I didn't find this that long before the podcast. So it was, a, I think it's a good find and, and it's the full article. So it's, and it's quite a few pages. It's, it's quite long. Hmm. enjoy it. And we'll get, we'll follow up with that and see maybe more about what uh, Marshall Ward had to say and, and maybe pull out some good points, uh, some good quotes, I'm sure out of that. Yeah. I'm sure that he probably explains the difference between the two a lot better than um, what we could do. Oh, in the very last section, it shows a lot of hand drawn pictures of, um, well, they're micro pictures of yeast and it looks like yeast, but it's just really neat. That's really cool. Um, all of these hand-drawn pictures because, you know, like a lot of stuff is digital or they have, um, you know, electron microscopes and takes pictures of this. But this looks like something that you would find at, at like an antique store that you would want to get framed and hang up in like your office or oh, kitchen yeah. or something like that. Well, hey, and this this is all stuff that this wouldn't be copyrighted information anymore. I mean, it's the whole you could just print these things up there. There is a gift you that go. you could There's make for gift. someone that there is totally go. geeked out on this kind of stuff. <laughs> Huh. Well, I will definitely read it. And yeah, we'll get back to everyone um, maybe in the next few podcasts and talk about it and figure out this the difference between the ginger beer plant and keeper. Um, but moving on, talking about things that we discussed last week, I was talking to some friends this week, this this past week um, after the episode aired. Um, and I have a really close friend who um, loves shastraming. I think I pronounced that right. That's the pickled herring that um, they put into barrels for what, like a year and then they can it for up to three years and it's, it's bloated. Yeah. Smells like bloated, vinegar. Bloated. And yeah, she said that, um, her grandmother loves it. Her grandmother's from Germany. Um, and, uh, even though it's not a German food, they would, they would eat it a lot. And her grandmother loves it. Her dad loves it. She ate it a few times or no, no, I don't know if she's had it, but she said her dad and her grandma love it. And um, whenever they go to Germany, they try to bring it back and smuggle it into the United States. So it is actually something that they do smuggle. I mean, it's not something that's easy to bring back. Yeah, I think they were successful one time when they were going through customs um, because the the TSA uh, border patrol man or whoever it was um kind of looked at it and was like, what is this? I'm not sure what this is. I don't know. I mean, it's bloated, but it's in a can. Uh, I don't know what to do. So they told him what it was, that it was fermented herring um, and that that it was food. And um, the TSA guys said, like, sure, just that's OK this one time, but don't bring it in again. So they got away with it. Sweet. So I told her next time that next time her family goes to Germany or somewhere where they have it, she needs to bring me back some. So it's on the way. 
May, it might be in the next like year or two, but at some point we will try it. If anyone knows how to send any of these things through the mail, that might be helpful as well, because this might be a little easier to get through the mail than something like a, a yogurt culture. Or otherwise, this is kind of the, the, the challenge in modern times. I mean, you look back at this article from 1892 with the ginger beer plan. I mean, they could have done whatever they wanted and taken their cultures wherever. Obviously, there's been lots of issues with plants and, and organisms traveling the globe throughout history and invasive species and whatnot. But at the same time, there is that challenge of getting cultures across borders now. And in order to keep them so we don't lose them, it seems really important that we be able to share things like this between. Sure, something like Sherstroming isn't going to have a be a starter culture of sorts, but something like ginger beer plant or or uh, an heirloom yogurt, that is something that's a little bit more important, I feel, that we 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 don't lose as because these things came at one point and may reappear naturally otherwise, but they may not either because we've totally changed our ways of, of holding milk and doing other things. So I, I think it'd be really nice to like kind of come up with some document or something at some point and uh, maybe uh, crowdsource some information on like how to smuggle these things. Not like, a, I mean, yeah, I guess technically it may be uh, not exactly legal, but at the same time, smuggling these kind of things in to different areas into how to get cultures across borders or how to get sure strong expanded cans through the mail and other things like that. So like, say like a, maybe a wiki on this about like, Oh, we were able to do this and in, in this, and this is how we would recommend doing it as well. I don't know if there's right. enough people doing it, but. Or just like a proper Avenue, like how to do it so that no one gets in trouble. And you know, you like you're, you wipe all your hands clean and there's no hard feelings or you're smuggling. Cause that kind of feels, I mean, just the word smuggling sounds wrong and awful, but just like tips, tips on how to, or how you mark things on your customs form just to get them through customs and stuff like that. Cause you're not allowed. There's a lot of States, um, where you can't send liquor still just by state laws and stuff like that. I believe, um, Indiana is still one of those States where you can't buy wine and have it shipped to your house. Um, I'm not quite sure if that's still true, but, um, you know, even that kind of stuff, it's still hard to get, get sourced to your house. Um, well, even in California, I mean, I feel like online, sometimes I see when I'm looking at plants or otherwise that just certain times there's warning saying that this cannot be shipped to Arizona or California or such and such for whatever reasons. So, I mean, there's, yeah, even, even within uh, crossing the borders of different States, at least through mail is sometimes a challenge. And there are good reasons for some of these things, but for some items that are relatively harmless, sure, strawming might fit somewhere in between there because the chance of an exploding tin might actually be a danger. So that one might be a little bit harder um, to to rationalize as to why it's not really an issue. But for some of these other things, it'd be really nice just to know how are people getting these things across or or, or, or if there aren't people doing it, let's get a few people to try. It's like when you're traveling, bring some native culture back that you find in some small little hut from people that have cultured it in their family for hundreds of years. And I mean, those are the kind of things we need to keep alive. Those would make good gifts. Those would make great gifts. Um, I have a friend who um, lives up in Oregon and he went to Spain for vacation and somehow I'll have to ask him how he did it, but he brought back a yeast, a native yeast culture from an old Spanish wine barrel um, that he has just hanging out in his fridge and he uses it to brew cider. Um, which is really, really cool that he has this really old yeast strain. Um, 
but I'll have to ask him how he did it and what he put on his customs forms. He probably just put yeast sample. Um, and, you know, not a lot of people probably know what that even means and just let them go. It really depends. I mean, it's some of it's going to just be look at the draw, I'm sure, because I've had all kinds of weird searchings or different things when going overseas or coming back. And I'm sometimes surprised at what is able to come through and then other times what doesn't. So, you know, it's, but so it probably, yeah, it probably is partly luck of the draw as to who a person gets, but yeah, let's, let's start drumming up some information on this. We'll, we'll get to the, that's a not quite time yet, but new year's resolution. Let's figure that out, stuff out for next year. Some point, maybe by 2015, we'll have a good source. On kind of moving on, I guess as well, uh, just make sure I mention it before I forget. And I keep forgetting there. Uh, I will be doing a workshop on yogurt and miso or two separate workshops, one on heirloom yogurts and the other on miso. And those are going to be on January 25th, 2014, already into the next year uh, for scheduling. So those are going to be in, they're going to be near Milwaukee at uh, Java dot cafe in Port Washington. So if anyone's in the area or will be maybe, passing through or anything else. It's going to be, they're going to be very small events. So uh, very intimate gatherings, plenty of time for questions and interactions. So if you're interested, you can check out the link uh, to firmup.com slash events. And we are going to start doing more local events, be they local in your area or not will be the question, but uh, we're going to start posting things in the events section. And then that's all I have for self-promotion. Well, and if anybody has in their area, if they know of, um, workshops that are going on, let us know so we can broadcast it and let, you know, just spread the word of other workshops and any other area it doesn't have to be in Wisconsin or in California. Um, so we can, so other people can enjoy all of these things too. Uh, let us know. I will, will pass along any information regarding any kind of workshops because you never know who's listening to the show and where they might be located, even if it's national internet, international or otherwise. So Send them our way, but moving on and this kind of leads into our main topic, but I just have to ask you first, something that's been on my mind a lot lately. And I've been trying to think about, and I've wanted to talk about it for a couple episodes as well. Do you use a digital scale, like say specifically a gram scale in your kitchen when fermenting or even just baking or cooking? I wish I could say yes to that question. I, and these are the reasons why I wish I, I, why I don't have one. Um, I always forget when, I mean, I really want one. Um, every time I use one at work, I think, oh man, this would be great if I had one to measure out flour or sugar, um, things like that. But, and I put it on my like mental wish list. I go to the store, like, you know, any, any kind of kitchen store. Um, and I completely forget about it. So I don't have one. It's on my wish list though. You're a scientist. I mean, come on. It's the, it's like, it's gotta be something that all scientists should have in their kitchens. I know. I, I really want one though. Maybe, maybe my husband will get me one this year for Christmas. He still has 10 days. So if he's listening, he can, he can get me one. Well, I'll put one in the show notes. That's actually pretty decent and very reasonably priced. It's like under like close to $30 on, on Amazon. And, uh, like it, it, like there there's, I mean, there's way cheaper ones too, but I mean, I think that the gram side is very important just because especially when fermenting, like there's, there's a lot of cookbooks out now, especially baking that do focus on, on the gram weight of the items involved because it's important. And I mean, I'm sure, you know, so I'm probably just preaching to the choir and hopefully everyone listening to this also uses a gram scale when measuring 
say salt for a ferment, especially when doing vegetable ferments, it's so much easier. I feel to be able to weigh it as opposed to either do it by taste or by salt to taste or, or, or measure it out with the archaic little tablespoon or teaspoon or different things like that. And the reason is because I like to go by percentage. I like to do uh, roughly if it's a, if it's dry weight, whereas in I'm going to get the juice out of the, the cabbage or whatnot, then I do a 2.25% roughly depending on the time of the year. I'll do that. And it's just nice when I can just weigh the cabbage or tear the, tear the bowl, weigh the cabbage and then measure the salt. And now uh, why do you do a 2.25%? Is that a rec- something that you recommended or saw in a book or is that just some, you know, tried and true, you've done it and it works? I like it because it's somewhere in between. I mean, for, well, say, so something like, like sauerkraut, anywhere from say 1.5 to 3.2 ish, I would say is probably the, the stretch, the span of different literature as to what is, but it's generally a, between a two and a 3% for if it's going to be dry salted and um, pounded or, or, or otherwise as in not adding a brine to it, that that's a good ratio f- to have the proper succession of, of microbial growth. I choose the 2.25. I don't even know where that number came from at one point, but I've stuck with it and I like it so much. And I generally will weigh no matter the time of year, I'll, I'll measure my salt and just, change the length of the fermentation period because I like kind of the same level of salt. Um, whereas it's like, say in the summer, um, I should maybe use more and in the winter I could use less. Or if I was going to do it in the basement, I could use less. I don't generally do that. I just dictate how long I ferment for based on mm-hmm. my 2.25% because I kind of, I choose temperature as my variable and, and control the salt. And I just like that number. Hmm. And because it's not like a 2.5 or it's a, you know, it's a, a 2.25. It just, it just, I, I just feel happy that when extra, I extra numbers, significant digits, that extra number. Yeah. Because well, and I think now that I think about it a little bit, it could also be that I'm really not the best with mathematical calculations quick off my head. So a 2.25% again, I'm sure there's plenty of people that could do that in their head, but that takes, gives me the excuse of needing a calculator. If it was like 2% or two, even 2.5, I could probably, if I, worked a little harder, figure that one out in my head, but like 2.25% is a little bit more difficult to just calculate off the weight of the, the sour or the cabbage and then do that. So that's my excuse too, is I have to use a calculator then. <laughs> no, and that's fine. I'm, uh, I think that that it, it just kind of makes it a little more, um, sciencey cool when you do use, when you have to use a calculator and pull out paper and write numbers down, it makes it a little more fun on, at least on my end. I like doing that kind of stuff. Um, I just didn't know if 2.25 was something that you read in a book versus just a, you just did it once and it worked. So you've just always done it that way. Yeah. I don't think I've ever actually seen that number. And if it was, it would have, the only place that I can, that I've seen such exacting numbers were in when I did research a long time ago on, on sauerkraut production, uh, commercial production. And that maybe was a place where that came out of. And I've just, I don't know. It's just, I kind of stuck with it. I'll do 5% for, for brines. Like if I'm doing, if, if I'm going to be adding water to it, which makes it even easier, like the, the dry weight stuff. I mean, sure. Weighing really helps me, but especially for, for brines, it's super simple because I can put all the vegetables in a jar and then I can tear the jar and the vegetables. Then 
add water to it, weigh the water that's in there so that I'm not having to guess how much water to put in. And then, then I add whatever 5% salt is for that. And then, um, I'll close the lid and shake it up. And then I've got a pretty well distributed brine. I mean, yeah, it's not, I exactly ideal, but a lot of, I mean, vegetable ferments are generally so forgiving that that's good enough for me, but I just like being able to use a digital gram scale. And that's not even getting into baking and the exacting of, and how inexact different measuring cups can be and how even just salt, if we're just going to go back to salt, I mean, salt, I I did an article about it a long time ago, but a tablespoon or a cup of salt, depending on what kind of salt a person's using, depending on the cut. I mean, if it's a kosher salt or a sea salt or even different sea salts are going to be different. It's going to, it's going to come out or even how a person levels their own salt, how accurate they are. The only way to really accurately discuss these things online or reading recipes is to measure it. Now, does it have to be that exacting? No, it's not really going to damage anything unless you're doing large batches. But at the same time, it sure does help with troubleshooting. If something goes wrong, I at least can rule out that it's not my salt that I may or may not have had the way I wanted it or the way it was last time. Hmm. That's a good point. I mean, I guess I've never really thought it thought about it from the sense of weighing out specifically salt, but um, just using one again for it's mostly for baking that I think of using a gram scale for um, because I know that that is extremely important. And I have used a scale before in baking at friends houses and it does make a world of difference. It just makes it so much easier. And it honestly, um, the, the end result, the cake or the muffins or whatever it is, um, not on the fermentation side, but it turns out better. They taste better. Everything is much more, um, distributed. Everything rises evil, evenly. Um, so maybe I'll get one for Christmas, especially baking. You don't have to use a bunch of utensils. It's like, I can weigh everything in one bowl or two bowls. If, if there's dry and wet that I need to measure separately. But it's just so it's it's a world of difference. And, and that's not even talking about like I have a separate little gram scale that goes down to the point the the tenth or uh, there's my math issues again. But uh, it, it goes down to, you know, uh, the, the, the different uh, decimal points so that I can get a very accurate measurement on my coffee when I'm going to be uh, grinding for espresso or otherwise. And, and that was that point five percent, that point one percent may or may not make a difference, but at least I can rule that out as being the question or the variable. I can control that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a coffee shop down the street from us that, um, he weighs out his coffee before he brews it. It's, um, a, it is not a cold press brew, but it's one of those, Oh, I, I, it's slipping my mind what it's called specifically. Um, but you put the, it's like a, an individual. The pour over? Yes. There you go. Um, and he weighs that out every time he makes oh, yeah. coffee. It makes it's a difference. It may, it's like the best coffee I've ever had in my life. It's a, it it's makes a, a huge difference. It's about control. It's about controlling the, the certain variables for consistency. And I mean, that, that's why it works in coffee. That's why it works in, in baking. And that's why it's important in fermentation because hello, it is controlled rot. So, um, I think the more control we can have, the better. Now that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with salting to taste or doing any of these things. Otherwise, I mean, there's something cool and artisanal or or, or artistic about being able to just do things by, by a intuitive sense. But yeah, I like my scale and I just, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot and it's just, it's so frustrating to me when 
a recipe is not based. It doesn't at least have that as an option because then I have to kind of translate it and wonder, well, how did they measure theirs? Is it different than how I'm going to translate it and convert it to grams in mind? So, but I like how you mentioned it does reduce or it does help with troubleshooting because sometimes um, there have been times where I've started a fermentation and it doesn't start as soon as I want it to or as well. Um, and a, I believe a lot of it is the lack of salt or even maybe too much salt um, that uh, kills off all the microorganisms. Um, but, you know, I don't know because I don't know. I I just I wouldn't just pour salt in there. I would have some sort of measuring some way to measure it. But if I had an accurate way to measure it, then that would definitely rule it out. And I could backtrack and, um, you know, back calculate, figure it out. So there you go. One gift idea for anyone, be they fermenting or just spend any time in the kitchen. I'll have something in the, in the show notes there. And I, and I will state that like, we do have things, um, on, from different different links to different items. We also have items on Amazon. They are affiliate links so that we'd get like a very tiny percentage if you were to to order through those links, but just to full disclosure on that, but that's not really why we're putting them there. I mean, it's just well since if it's going to work might as well, but at the same time, I mean, this I just shop on Amazon, so that's those are the links I have. If you don't want if you want to make sure that there's no affiliate linkage going on, just just search for these items outside and don't use those links, but that's the little disclaimer. But then, so that's my first, uh, first gift idea. What's, what's yours? First gift idea, um, that I have that I love that I would probably give, I would gift it to someone else. Um, are these three gallon stoneware pickling crocks. Um, they're great. Um, it's, it's a substantial size, three gallons. Uh, and so you can do like a medium sized fermentation, but you know, you lose a lot of water and, uh, volume, um, when you do a fermentation. So it kind of adds uh, a lot of space to, it gives you a lot of room to like mix things and stir things up and kind of like check it out instead of the smaller ones. Um, There's just more working volume. So I really like it. Um, And they're kind of like really cool, old looking, um, you know, put them on the counter. Yeah. They're made in the USA. If you kind of look at them in, um, in your kitchen and, and people come over, they always ask you what's in there. And it's just one of those cool things to have. So you, you have the three gallon version. I do. Mm -hmm. And I really like it. Do you have it with a lid or do you, do you just do your own thing? Um, I just do my own thing. They do have lids. Um, and there's other ones on Amazon, um, where, you know, you, depending on how much you're willing to spend, you can get a lid, um, with some sort of, um, I want to say rubber tubing around the outside. Um, but then, but with something like that, you'd need some kind of pressure release. And so there's these kraut caps. Um, I don't have these, um, because I make my own. Um, but it's nice to know if you're in a pinch or if you just don't really have a drill or like the necessary tools to make your own, um, you can buy these and it's just a, a screw on lid with a fermentation lock built inside of it. So you don't have to, you know, comes up. You just, I think you just manually, manually put it together. And for those you're talking about for mason jars, correct? Um, they're or mostly for mason, mason jars, um, or one gallon, um, glass containers. So it doesn't really fit on this three gallon stoneware pickling crock that I have. Um, with that, I usually just have a weight, whether it's like a brick that's wrapped in aluminum foil to hold stuff down with like a plastic piece that I'm, you know, a big, um, uh, like Ziploc plastic container, 
one of those lids that I just cut around to make it fit the area of the surface and weigh it down with um, stones or something that's heavy, um, water, brine. Um, And then I just kind of scoop off the surface mold if there's any, or just cover it with like um, aluminum foil and just kind of leave it loosely loose around the edges so the CO2 can escape. See, and that's all, that's, it's like one of the simplest uh, methods and it works, works great. And I mean, yeah, I know, I've, I've never had a problem with it. And the nice thing about getting something, well, especially if, if someone's getting for a gift, it makes sense to, to do it this way. But, uh, there's a lot of Crocs that are, can be found at thrift stores or, or elsewhere old Crocs. And some of them are great and I've used them. I mean, that's how I started was just using an old Croc that I found at a thrift store, but there is the chance that there could be leaching of lead if there was in the ceramic glaze there, there was lead used at a time period when that was the case, then there's questionability as to if that gets into the ferments or some evidence that it does. So, you know, the nice thing about if you're getting it as a gift, you know that you're not going to have to be worrying about lead poisoning for your loved ones. Yeah. So what's on your list for Christmas? Well, I figure I would, um, you know, go into something that is a little bit not so high tech, like the digital gram scale. I'll go back uh, old school, like a pestle and mortar. I think that that is something that is super beneficial in, in it's one of those old school tools that makes a huge difference in cooking in general, sometimes in fermentation, but just being able to grind spices fresh and, um, and to be able to, to, to mix little pastes and different things like that. And it especially works great for kimchi for, uh, making the paste. I don't have oh, one. That's right. Yeah. But if so, I, if I did have one, that's what I would do instead of using my, I mean, I, I use a blender or my food processor a lot of times and that kind of is able to replace the pestle and mortar a lot of times, but for, for smoothness and consistency, especially when dealing with a small amount of something, the pestle and mortar definitely is the way to go. I believe we had one at one time, but we've moved so many times in the past four or five years that it's the mortar and pestle has somehow disappeared. It, you know, things like that kind of, it's, it's a great tool to have. Um, but if you move around a lot, it's one of those things that just gets lost. (laughs) So we may have to invest in another one. Yeah. And depending on what size a person gets, like the big, big, uh, Stone ones are from say places like Thailand and whatnot are, are great for, well, for Thai cooking and elsewhere, but yeah, those, those don't necessarily always travel so well. No, (laughs) but what else is on your list? Well, the other thing that I have that I actually, that I, that I do have, since I don't have the pestle and mortar right now is, um, uh, a cast iron pizza pan because again, fermentation, I've been doing a lot with bread lately and been doing a lot of experiments with, with pizza and it really just, uh, and sourdough pizza crusts really just took things up a notch. I've used, are, are you, have you ever made pizza before from scratch? Oh, I have. Uh-huh. Yep. Like, have you used one of those, uh, bread or, or, uh, stones like pizza stones? Mm-hmm, we have one. Um, and it works pretty well. Um, the only problem is you, that we always forget about is you have to, when you, when you turn your oven on, you have to put the stone in there, um, to heat up with the oven. Otherwise, if you put it in there before or um, after it's, you know, heated all the way, it has the chance of snapping in half and breaking because of the differences in temperature, all sudden changes in temperature. Um, well, so we try to remember to do that, but sometimes it doesn't work. 
Well, and the, and, and in regard to that, I mean, I think the recommendation for those, those things are, are to have it before like an hour to an hour and a half before to really get it preheated fully. Um, and then they, like you're saying, they have the chance of breaking and different things like that. I've, I've actually never had a pizza stone. I've done the equivalent of a, like a landscaping stone, like one of those big 16 by 16 ones from the hardware store. I've done that before, but like pizza stones or anything, they're, they're possible. They'll break or different things like that. The cast iron lodge cast iron pizza pan has been great. It's 14 inches works great for any of the sourdough pizza crusts that I've been making. And it would also work for sourdough pizza as well. And just slide that right on there. The nice thin crust Neapolitan style pizza. And, and it does need to go in. Well, I don't think it has to go in, but it it needs uh, to preheat as well, but it much shorter time period of like 30 minutes. So that's again, something that's not necessarily fermentation only related, but something that if someone likes pizzas and since a lot of pizzas fermented crust, and especially if you want to go to sourdough crusts, it's the way to go. I think my dad would love that. And I still need to get him a gift. He, my dad loves pizza. So, um, and he's always trying to do different things with pizza. He wants to deep fry a pizza, but to me, that's kind of like the same thing as a calzone. Well, he wants to, he has all these different ideas. He's like always thinking of different ways to make pizza. So, um, I think he'd really like that. I've never heard of that cast iron pizza pan. I've been very, I've been very happy with it. So Anyway, the next thing that I really want is some sort of like um, mandolin. And um, on Amazon, I found um, two different kinds that I would be interested in. Hopefully, fingers crossed, asking for Christmas. Um, and there's the Weston Cabbage Shredder. And then there's also when, you know, when you when you cook, when you type something into Amazon, it gives you other suggestions instead of just what you put in there. Um, it's called a Prepworks from Progresso. Um GPC 4000. Whoa. Yeah. 4000 fruit and vegetable chopper. Um, and I just really want one because I'm not very good at chopping things up and I don't really have the patience to get a uniform size of like cabbage or carrots, um, things like that. So this would definitely reduce time and shredding stuff up to make sauerkraut, um, or to cut up any pears, anything like that that would go into a fermentation. Plus it, I think it really helps to have everything the same shape. Um, and it's just a little more efficient and effective and it just makes it look better. I mean, I'm all about the artisanal aspect of it, but from like a science side, I just think that it makes the ferment happen faster, more effectively and efficiently. Um, and gives you maximum benefits because everything's the same size. I could see that I've, I've wanted one before too. And I just, I actually have one uh, that uh, I'd link to later on in my list as well. And it's a, a a stainless steel cabbage slicer. It's, it's like a super fancy one that a person can put into one of those big uh, restaurant plastic tubs and really get going. If you're going to make a lot of sauerkraut or otherwise, the only thing that's kept me from doing it. Well, I say there's, there's, two things besides just an added item, which isn't too much of an excuse because I like a lot of kitchen stuff, but at the same time, I really like the knives that I have. And so they work really well and I can get pretty consistent with it. And I feel like I only get better the more I practice. So I want to, you know, if, if I do that, am I going to just become a really sloppy uh, cutter or whatever the better term would be? Well, I mean, I think I I thought the same thing, but um, I took a knife skills class 
this past summer. Um, and I, I'm still not that good at chopping things up, but it doesn't matter. Every time I try to chop up peppers or garlic or onions or whatever it is, even meat, I, I'm always thinking of those techniques. So I don't think I would necessarily get lazy on my chopping because I'm always thinking of, okay, I need to be cutting this pepper this way to make them the same size, but I'm just really slow. It takes me like 10 minutes to chop up a pepper. Oh, a pepper. Okay. <laughs> so I can't even imagine what it'd be for say cabbage or like a big giant head of cabbage for, for sauerkraut. Oh, it'd take me forever just because I would probably get really, um, um, oh, I can't think of the word, but anal about, um, size. And so it would just, I would just be like, we're, it would probably take me forever just because I'm so such a perfectionist that it would drive me nuts if and, I didn't. And it does, it does take me a long time to cut up cabbage. So if anyone else is a perfectionist, just get one of these things and stop driving yourself crazy, but it, it does makes life easier. It does sound like then you have a nice set of knives. If you took a knife class, then I do. Um, we that have makes a, a huge difference. It does. It really does. Um, we, I can't remember. It's not a, an extremely fancy brand of just everyday chopping knives, but we do have some very nice carving knives, um, like Whoopstoff knives. Um, Those are pretty nice. They're really nice. And we, we only use them when we're um, carving meats um, because, well, they're, they're designed, the ones we have are designed for specifically that. Um, but I would love to get just like an all purpose vegetable Whoopstoff knife. Well, the other thing you might consider if you're like, if the thing holding you off is, is expense and it's like a, a knife set that I like are knives, even just individual ones that I always recommend to people are the, the Mercer cutlery. They're generally geared towards student chefs, but I've had them since say like 2008. Uh, and the only reason why I know that is because I was just looking up a link for this set that comes in like a nice glass block. And for knives, it's relatively inexpensive, especially compared to Wustoff or Henkel's, the, the nice ones. Um, but, uh, I, I saw that I still have a review on there that I put on. It's the top one, 110 people out of 110 people found my review helpful. That's always nice when like taking the time to do a review and people actually liked it or found it useful. But anyway, back to, yeah. So that was in 2008 that I started using these knives and I've used them for fermentation ever since. And they work uh, very nicely and they're not too expensive for knives. Now, do you go to the, how often do you sharpen your knives? I don't sharpen them nearly enough. I do the honing of them separate okay. than the sharpening, sharpening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what that, that's not going to be on my list of things that I think people, uh, gift ideas, but sure it works, uh, for, I, I'm, I, I have a book on sharpening now. And then the next step is just investing in the different sharpening stones to do it myself. Mm, okay. Just wonder, I mean, that was kind of an out of the blue random question. Cause I just thought of that. Cause, um, our, Woofstoff knives, um, we go and get them sharpened at the grocery store. There's a store here that does it for you. Um, there's just a person there and you drop them off and then you go pick them up a week later. Um, so I didn't know if you did it yourself or. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to start because otherwise it adds up and it's like, it, it, well, it's not exactly cheap to get because like there's, there's knife sharpening blocks and then there's the wet stones or the other forms of stones that I don't really know much about yet other than the book I've started to go through, but it really doesn't look that difficult and I'm not as intimidated as I once was, but I'm just slightly intimidated by the over a hundred plus dollars price tags of 
getting the stones to, mm-hmm. to make it worth it. But then, but then after that point, then, oh man, it's going to be sweet compared to how it is now because it's been a while since I've sharpened mine, but they're still nice and good and strong and they're just going to be dangerous once I finally sharpen them. <laughs> um, well, moving on, what else is on your list of like, out of everything that you can think of, what would be like your number one pick? Ooh, why are you in- implying that my list is too long? Um, no, I'm just wondering because I mean, a lot of the stuff that you have on your list is, are things that I'm also interested in purchasing. The, I'd say the number one, or I'll say it's a little trio of of things that I have in there, which are temperature controllers. If you haven't noticed, I'm kind of into uh, controlling rot again. I, I, the first temperature controller I ever had was a Johnson's controller. A lot of people use it in, in beer. And I started using that when I built a little incubator for, for thermophilic yogurts and needing that around 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It made it perfect for that because I can control it down to a, a degree of Fahrenheit degree of accuracy. So I can, I can know that I'm fermenting that at the level that I want. And especially if you listening or someone that you know is interested not only in making their own incubator for for yogurts, which there are plenty of other options and less expensive ways to go about doing it than getting a controller or a thermostat. There, when someone starts getting into uh, making miso and they need to incubate koji or they make natto or or tempeh, all those things start to need environments. Unless a person lives in an environment where where it's kind of where it natively began. Like say, if you're making tempeh in Indonesia, you don't necessarily need an incubator uh, unless making it commercially or whatnot. So, but in order to replicate those environments in a different area, like say in Wisconsin in the winter, I kind of need an incubator for that. So these controllers work great. I would say that the better, not better, but even nicer controller, which might fit more with someone that has like all kinds of things they like to ferment, especially if you're into wine or beer as well, which I don't do any of those things, but there's the, uh, the, a little PID controller, like a PID controller, Elatech. I'll put it in a link in the show notes. But if, if you feel comfortable at all with doing any kind of wiring, it works great because it's a controller that's like $17. It's way cheaper than the Johnson controller. And as long as feel comfortable wiring up, like you can just hack a, a, uh, well, I'm not an electrician, so don't take my advice, but you can find plenty of, of things online for how to hack up a, uh, extension cord, use the wires from that connect for a heat source. I just use a light bulb and I put it inside of a little dorm fridge that I got at like a, a thrift store consignment place for $3. And so I have it inside of that and I'm able to control both the refrigerator to cool it as well as the light bulb to heat it. So I can keep Hmm. things really regulated. Even if the ferment starts to get warmer, I can cool it back down. I'm not actually using the cool because I'm something's funky with the way I've tried to wire it. So I just cut that out and it's really simple to wire up with just heat and that for $17 plus a old extension cord and a light bulb and socket and different stuff. I mean, it ends up being $25 for something as long as you have some kind of box to put it in. That's a great idea. And that's actually on my list of things that I want. I want to find a great book, online resource person. So maybe I should just consult you um, on how to make a good food ferment, ferment like food incubator. Because um, something that I really want to do this New Year's is be a little more consistent at 
doing fermentations, I kind of get on a spurt and I do a whole bunch of stuff. And then there's maybe a few weeks where I don't have anything going on. But I think a lot of it is just because I don't have um, good temperature control and a good place to do all of my ferments. Um, So if I had a food incubator, I think I'd be a little more apt to be consistent and be constantly working on things like that. Plus, I would rather make it myself than to buy something. I think there's a lot of pride in saying that, oh, I made this and it works and I'm making food all by myself. Plus, it's a lot cheaper. Oh, yeah. Way cheaper than any like thing that's out there for actually like especially if you're talking like a full on incubator at any kind of size. Like if you're doing little dinky things or making a yogurt incubator, I mean, sure, you can get cheap things that that are cheaper than my original model of making it. But I've used it for so many different kinds of things that it's so worth it. And now that I've, I've experimented with this even cheaper controller that I'll put in the show notes that I highly recommend people at least consider if you can connect any kind of electrical stuff, or even if you've never done it before, it's really simple. And, and I, and another really cheap way that I've been experimenting with lately is with an aquarium heater. Are you familiar with like a, say an aquarium, you put a submersible glass heater or metal heater inside, and then it regulates the temperature, um, on the lower range. So it's going to be more like under 90 degrees. Sure. I've, I've seen it. I've never used one like that before, but I've seen it in other people's houses with aquariums. Yeah. And so you don't have to put it in an aquarium. You can just put it into a plastic tub and then put less water than it necessarily requires. Like I have 150 watt one that would go up to 40 gallons, but I only put maybe five gallons inside this big tub and then set a, and then put ferment, like say for Koji or for tempeh, I'll just set that down and it will float on top. And then the water keeps at a consistent temperature with the lid kind of cracked open for air circulation a little bit. And that those things are under $20 on Amazon too. So, I mean, it's kind of hit or miss. Those things kind of break out or break a little bit more often, but it's another really cheap way, especially if someone doesn't want to do that as long as you don't mind floating things in water. So there's, there's, there are a lot of options out there for controlling temperature. And so I don't think anyone has any kind of excuse for not controlling temperature. If you want to get, uh, if you want to start doing more ferments, especially, Hey, if 2014 resolutions, you want to start fermenting all kinds of different things or being more consistent. Like Allison control the temperature, control the, the weight, you know, this is the year of control in, in a good way, positive way, positive control. Right. Right. And I think if I have a better way of controlling my ferments, then I'll be more consistent with, um, the quality of them. And then that would make it also easier to troubleshoot because sometimes you kind of get into a rut where you have a, a, or I shouldn't say rut, you have a lot of really great ferments and then you have some duds. Um, and a lot of that is probably based off of differences in temperature. Um, so I think if you can are consistently having good fermentations, then you are more motivated, at least me personally, then I'm more motivated, I should say, to be doing it. Whereas if you do some bad ones, you're like, oh, I, this isn't working. I'm going to take a break. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a positive reinforcement. It works. Mm-hmm. It so- really does. So I'm hoping to find um, a good how-to on some um, on a, some type of food incubator. So, But all your suggestions are great. And um, the electrical thing, I you mentioned that a few times if you don't know a lot about electricity and um, wiring and stuff. There's a really great book um, from the Home Depot that I believe my husband bought a few years ago because um, he did a lot of electrical work in our previous house um, with wiring uh, like doorbells and lights and stuff like that. And he doesn't have any sort of um, electrical degree. He's pretty handy. Um, but he said that it was really easy to read and, um, kind of figure it out. And if you have some kind of 
logical sense of do just following directions, then it's pretty easy. So I'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah. I think that's important because especially something like an incubator that's going to stay on for a long period of time. If you are doing any wiring, which again, there's plenty of incubator options that don't require any wiring for someone to do themselves. But you know, if it's going to be something that's going to be unattended, then it's probably better that it's not going to spark or set something on fire. Yeah. And with that, um, I would definitely say that a voltmeter is probably a definite purchase. Um, I, I'll have to ask him which one he likes better. He has, um, like a digital voltmeter and then he also has one with a gauge. Um, and, um, there's some other thing that he plugs into the wall or whenever he's done connecting, um, all of the plugs and it tells you if it's, uh, wired correctly. So that is also really helpful because then it's kind of a safety for you too. So I'll ask him what that is just for people who want to do something like this. Yeah. And we'll have to see, we'll have to talk about next, uh, in 2014, maybe we can, if if you are going to build something, maybe we can kind of document it and then do an episode on it, on it too, just about incubators. And that might be more exciting for some people than others, but I think that giving people kind of your experience, but then also we can do a blog post about it or whatnot and put some pictures in there because that's one thing I've been bad about doing is I'm always experimenting with trying these things for the first time. And then I realize I have a finished product, but no photos that I took during the process. So maybe we can well, document it. New a Year's bit resolution. Better. You should, we should be a little more proactive about doing that kind of stuff. Yes. <laughs> we can, we can talk all day about this stuff, but like actually documenting it, that's a little, that's a whole different world. <laughs> exactly. So um, what do you have? What else, what do you have? What else do you have? What's your, okay. So if, if you haven't already said it, what's your number one importance kind of thing? If someone's looking for something for fermentation related or otherwise. Um, let's see. It's something that I would recommend for people, uh, to make it their house or like a gift idea or any, any of the above, any of the above. Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't know that was a question. So yes, any of the above. Sorry. I got a little confused there. It sounded like a question, but then it wasn't really a question. Um, I love giving books to people. I love reading. Um, so I would probably recommend, um, people who are really interested, um, this yeast book, it's called yeast and it's written by, uh, Chris white, who, um, is the president owner of white labs. And I think I've mentioned it a few times, but I really love it because he takes something that's really complicated, um, and puts it in very easy terms to read. It's actually really enjoyable to read as a book for pleasure. So I would definitely recommend that to people. And it kind of gives you a better idea of what's actually happening in the fermentation. Um, he briefly mentions a little bit about bacteria, but more on the side of uh, beer bacteria. So not the lactic acid bacteria that are in vegetable fermentations or yogurt fermentations, but that, I mean, they're all pretty much the same. So if you understand that concept in the brewing world, then it's pretty much general, you know, straight across the board. So that's a really great book. Um, what about you? Do you have any book recommendations for people? You saw my list. I, I have quite a few. There's plenty of books and there is, I, it, I mean, there's, there are good there, like say that for this year, one book that came out that is, you know, more long form, not a cookbook or otherwise would be cooked by Michael Pollan. I thought that was very good with, with a entire quarter of the book about fermentation. And, uh, that one I listened to as an audiobook, and, and most of the things I end up listening to that aren't cookbooks, I end up doing that way, which I also listened to the art of fermentation as an audiobook. Very good. I didn't know how that'd be since there's a lot more, not a lot, but more technical detail, but it was 
great to be able to absorb it in a different way. And I absorb things differently when I'm listening versus reading. So, so those, those were both good. Um, and then, you know, it's like, there's, there's just, there's, there's a, a lot of, of good fermentation related books. And, and I've been doing a lot with, with bread lately. So, um, flour, water, salt, yeast, that one's a good one by uh, Ken Forkish. And then Tartine is a book that I've always liked since that one came out. I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, it's, it's about sourdough and, and my wife does more with the sourdough, but that book really kind of made it very approachable to make bread at home because I've tried some of the other, uh, I think Peter something or other that does bread too, and has some books over the years. I've tried some of his, the main issue is that steam getting, getting the proper kind of steam at a home oven. And I think I might've mentioned it before, but I'll put that in the show notes too. So it's kind of like the Tartine book, which there's a new one coming out, which is going to be all about whole wheat breads and whatnot, but it's probably going to have a similar technique of the suggestion of using a Dutch oven. And, uh, there's a specific Dutch oven I'll put in the, in the links that is just, we have two of them so that we can make two loaves at the, at the same time. And, and it allows the bread to maintain enough humidity and moisture the same as a steam oven or similar to how a steam oven would do it and allow a person, uh, allow the bread to rise enough before the outside browns and, and, and hardens. And Mm -hmm. I did not describe that very well, but you know, it's, it pretty much was just like the wow factor of like now sourdough bread is awesome at home. And so that's the reason why I'm looking forward. It's not actually out yet, but it will be out. I think very soon in the next week or so that tartine book number three, and that will be all about whole wheat, which I are all whole grains, which most of the other one was about, about white flowers. And so that, that would probably be the top. And then I've got all kinds of other ones like the kimchi cookbook and Cheesemaker's Apprentice. Those books both came out relatively recently. True Brews. It's all about making ciders and beers and wines and kefirs and kombuchas. And there's all, there's just so many good books out there. There, I mean, just looking at your list, I, I want to go and there's a lot of books that I really want. And, um, you know, personal resolution of mine that I was telling my husband this past weekend is my goal, because I'm really bad at this, is to read one book a month. Um, and I might start out with, um, the Sandra Katz, the art of fermentation. You mentioned it, you did an audio book of it, but I would like to actually read it and kind of, I think he has some diagrams and recipes in there, right? Or am I? Well, they're not, it's more like Sandra Katz style. It's even, I'd say more so than wild fermentation, which had some recipe more style to it. Whereas the art of fermentation is more suggestions and walk throughs of doing things, but no specific measurements really, or otherwise. I mean, some of them talk about temperature or whatnot, but there's no, it's not like say I listen to it as an audiobook. It's not listening to a cookbook by any means. It's definitely more long form writing that just goes through all aspects of, of fermentation. And that's going to be a, that, that's a, a decent chunk for, for a month. So that's a good one to start out with because then that will make the rest of the, uh, the year and, and the rest of the 11 months much easier. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, if I have to, I'll split it up into like six books for the whole year. Um, because they start, uh, you know, you get busy and you put books down and sometimes it's, uh, not hard to get back into them, but you know, you have other things to do. Life happens. So that's my problem is life happens. And then by the end of the day, I'm just so wiped out that I just, have to go to bed. Um, and that's usually my reading time is at the end of the day. Um, but that's just a personal thing. I'm going to make more time to do it and I hope to 
read a lot of these books, a lot of these fermentation books that um, you've talked about. Yeah. One of the more recent ones is Mastering Fermentation by uh, Mary Carlin. She also does or did uh, another book I have on the list about artisan cheese making at home. And both of those books are, are good. And, and, um, and yeah, there's just, there's plenty, there's real food fermentation that I think came out this last year as well. And, and don't forget, uh, fermented, uh, with Jill Cicerelli, who was on the show quite a few episodes back. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of specific ones for general fermentation as well as for specific topics and, if fermentation is of interest to anyone, you know, I think the other great thing about books, they, they work well to get a book and then do like a, say a little make your own kit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like you can get a lot of kits online. I mean, William Sonoma and what's that other one? Food 52. They, they've got a lot of kits for different cooks or, or, or bakers or otherwise, or, or for making drinks. And I think those, those are great if a person doesn't have time, but if you have any time and you're really trying to craft a a gift for someone, I think getting a book and then kind of either even just on Amazon or, or online, being able to look at the introductory chapters or if, especially if they have like an equipment section and then see like, what's the suggested things that a person would need. And then getting some of those items all and make, just make a kit yourself because what, for one, it's way cheaper than getting one of those, some of those ready-made kits that generally, you know, it's, it's one of those value added products where there's really not a whole lot, a value to making the kit. It's because they put the kit together for you that that's what you're paying for. So, you know, I mean, which is, which is great if you don't have time, but if you have any time making a kit's fun too. Right. And that's a great idea. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking, I loved giving people gifts and that was one of my suggestions I was going to say is to make your own kit to give to people because it is easy and it's actually a lot cheaper. And I think it's a lot, again, more approachable, but also sustainable because a lot of those pre-made kits um, they only give you bacteria or rennet or whatever it is to make one batch or quantity. And then you don't really know where to get the rest of it and you're intimidated. So you don't really move any, you don't move forward. So a kit where, or even just like instructions on where to go um, to get, you know, extra ingredients is of great value too. And and I think you have in the show notes a few examples of kits or how people can put together kits or where to go for kits? Sure. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the first thing I thought of was brewing beer, um, of of things that you can make at your house to share with other people or gifts you can give to other people who, um, you know, depending on how much you're willing to spend, but a beer making kit is relatively quote unquote inexpensive. Um, and there's a really great place, um, website called homebrew mart. And um, they have a lot of kits available to buy, but it's just the equipment. Um, now, to buy them individually from beer making um, brewing kits or equipment individually can be very expensive. But if you buy a kit, um, that cuts it down by at least half. So if you go to Home Brew Mart, which um, I'll put a link in the show notes, um, they have a beer kit number two, and it's a great starter kit. For anyone who's interested in just learning the basics of brewing, it just has like a glass carboy, um, a food grade uh, plastic container, all of the tubing that you need, plus like the sanitizers. And I think they also include um, a um, recipe plus um, all the ingredients that you would need to brew your first, first beer. So it's a great, I mean, it's a great way to start. 
they, they mail it to you and you have everything there. Well, and I think that's something to, to, to clarify is like, that's the good kind of kit. Those are the kind of kits where you actually save money by getting everything together because you're getting something that would otherwise cost a lot to, or potentially save money because some, if you piece out all those pieces, sometimes they're more, sometimes they're less because you're, you're talking about a much more specialized kit. Whereas it's like when you're at like the cheaper kits, like those are the kind of ones where it's like, well, you barely get anything with them or, or, um, you get a jar that costs two times as much as that jar would otherwise cost. But beer kits, especially like some of the, if you get into like a little bit more expensive kits, then it's definitely something that's, that's worthwhile to get the, because it, it, I'd say it's, it's called a kit, but it's more like a package. It's like, you're getting the package deal as opposed to piecing out separately. Right, right. Maybe they should rephrase or rename it and call it the beer package, beer package number two, because you do get all of these great pieces of equipment. Um, and they're also things that you can use for other types of fermentation. You don't have to use them for brewing. So it, that, again, is also a great value and it's versatile. So you can use it for other things. You could use your glass carboy to make kombucha. Might be kind of hard to remove the SCOBY, but you could use it for that. Or you can make ginger beer. Um, you know, the possibilities are endless, um, and you can make it in bigger batches. The other thing that, I mean, I really want for Christmas, um, that I've been wanting for a long time, but it's one of those things, like, I'm just not willing to pay for it yet is, um, a, I want to get some corning kegs and start kegging my own beer, um, which is very inexpensive, but I haven't done it because what I really want is a kegerator. I would love to have a kegerator. Um, but those are really expensive. So it's e actually easier to piece it out. This is the one that's easier to piece out and buy the individual pieces and then just find an old fridge at Goodwill or the Salvation Army or on Craigslist or something and make it yourself. Well, yeah, so you can like buy someone a, all of the pieces to make a, um, a kegerator or you can make it for someone and then give it as a gift. It probably would cost you $50. Oh yeah. Like, because the, the corny keg is what would you would put inside of the, to make your own kegerator. I mean, that's pretty much what you're, you're talking about. Like, can't you just do right. a corny keg inside? Yeah. You would, you would brew your beer and then you would, um, carbonate, force carbonate it in a corning keg, um, just a stainless steel keg. And then that corning keg is what goes into the kegerator. So the, so those two pieces, the corning, um, the corning keg with the tubing and then the kegerator can get expensive if you buy them as is put together at, say, a restaurant supply store or at like Costco or, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond. Like those are expensive as is like that. But if you source out all the little tiny pieces, um, like you can go to you can probably find a corning keg used online on like eBay or something. Um, buy it and then just piece all the, all of it together. Um, get an old fridge, maybe costs you $50. Yeah. And, and as long as a person has time to do this last minute, but again, some, that could also be your excuse. If you haven't known what to get someone and you really want to, you know, make up for the fact that your gift might be belated, go, go all out and, you know, do these kind of, these kind of projects where you're putting your, your, your sweat and tears and everything into putting something together. That's probably not really that difficult to put together, but the fact you can say you did it and made it out of the love of your heart and you're here to share this beer or fermentation or whatever. And I mean, it means it's kind of late to be making many ferments for people. You'd always already have to kind of have that, but done, but uh, that's another option. 
is to make some ferments and package them up as nice little gifts or if going to holiday parties, that can be kind of nice to take, take something like that. Um, you know, instead of a bottle of wine, bring some kind of other homemade beer, kombucha, I guess a jar of sauerkraut kimchi might be appropriate depending on who your friends are, but Hey, all kinds of things that a person can do with their, their own fermented things. I mean, they're, they're meant to be shared. That's right. They're meant to be shared. And um, the last thing that I want to say um, before I think we end this episode is um, there's a website called craftsy.com. Um, Brandon, you and I have talked about it off, not um, on a recording, but you and I have discussed this website a few times. And um, it's a really cool website. Everyone should go to it and just check it out. They have all sorts of different types of crafts. Um, like sewing, embroidering, um, knitting, that sort of thing. But they also have a food section. Now, they don't really have a lot of like fermented foods on there, but it's um, an online tutorial um, and they're divided into different segments. So you could buy um, the bread making package and it has 10 different, I, I would say, episodes. And you can learn how to make 10 different types of bread or learn more of bread in depth. Um, and I think that makes a great gift for someone, especially for someone who may not have time to actually go to a workshop or drive somewhere. Um, or for like a parent who's at home, they can you do it at your leisure and kind of repeat the episodes. So I think it's a really cool idea. It's a really cool gift idea. Yeah, that's true because there's really not a whole lot of, there aren't a whole lot of options for say recorded fermentation. Th- I mean, you can find short things on YouTube, but like not something to give as a gift, but yeah, that'd be definitely something that you could gift to someone. I'm sure that you can figure out a way to do it. Or maybe they even have like a gift certificate option on there. Yeah. I think if you go to, um, when you go to check out or if you put something in your, um, cart, I think it'll ask if it, you want to give it as a gift. I'm sure you probably just type in that person's email address and they get sent maybe an email that says, congratulations, someone, or you, Someone bought you this gift. Enjoy. But um, I just think it's a really cool idea for, especially since I live in California, but a majority of my family lives in Indiana. I could give this to my mom as a gift that she can use it at her leisure and we could even do it together. Like we would watch maybe the first episode and maybe we could Skype and bake bread together and watch an episode or something like that. So the gift that just keeps giving or or keeps interacting and people can all have fun together. That's what, that's what it's all about. I think that's it. I actually think that's a good idea. And, and then, so yes, if you have, if you live as many of us do live in areas where you have people that live elsewhere, it's a good way to share things. Yeah. Any, do you have any other gift ideas for people? Well, I'm thinking we're getting a little long here, so I do have some other things. I'll kind of throw some things into the, into the show notes. The one, the one kit related thing that, I would say that if you really want to get kitty about it, it would be doing a, like if you want to do a kombucha kit, I haven't seen this in any kits that are out there because you know, you get a jar and maybe some, uh, some pepper paste or, uh, or otherwise. And I know you're not a whole huge kimchi person, but I say I've been looking at these, these red kimchi or not, they're not kimchi gloves, but like these red gloves that are similar to those photos from the weather channel uh, and that I've seen otherwise that are kind of traditionally used for, uh, for, for mixing up the pepper and mixing up large batches of kimchi during the festival that, uh, Kim Jong, I believe is what it's called, but I could be totally messing that up right now, but you know, get some of those gloves because you got to have the gear 
to be able to, you know, mix it up with the hands without burning uh, skin from red peppers and then get the, uh, the other thing that I would say really unlocks the flavor of kimchi is getting actual Korean red pepper. Uh, it's like, I put a link in there for some coarse powder. I'm sure you can get some locally. There's gotta be places in, in California, but I haven't been able to find any locally yet. That's actually the Korean red pepper. There's sometimes kimchi red pepper, but a lot of times it's made in China and it's not quite the same. It just doesn't have quite that same smell. And I think it's just the way that they're, the, the peppers are dried. And that's something I want to do. Hopefully this next year is for one, figure out peppers, what kind of peppers they kind of are, and then also learn how to dry them myself so that I can grow them in my garden and not buy expensive Korean pepper, but it is one of the key ingredients to really good kimchi. So doing things like that, like getting things that you really wouldn't get in a kit because you know, they're, they're introductory kits, like get people the good stuff, even if they don't know, even if they won't be able to appreciate how good it is because someday they will, once they get hooked on kimchi or get hooked on whatever, and then they'll come back to thank you. And and that's that. So that's where I'll, I'll wrap up is like with, with those, I'll put those in the show uh, links in the show notes and, uh, like say if you wanted to get into miso with koji or otherwise and i think do you have any last things that you wanted to throw in there gifts gift giving wise no not really but um i think we have a pretty extensive list of things and gift ideas um and gift giving ideas so um but if anybody has any other suggestions or um has a really great gift idea that they want to share with us and that we'd be happy to take it Gifts are always a good, especially this kind of stuff. If you know anyone that's interested in anything, baking, cooking, fermentation, or anything food related, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that people could get into, um, or, or it's a good way to, to sneak them into something that maybe you have interest in as well. Get them hooked, give them a sample, and then they'll just keep coming back for more. And other than that, I guess, yeah, just get in contact with us on the show notes. You can find at firmup.com slash podcast slash 44. You can find us on Twitter at FirmUp, Facebook at FirmUp, Google Plus FirmUp, and on Pinterest and other ways, other places as well. Just just search everywhere for FirmUp and you'll find us. And until next time, FirmUp!